Welcome aboard! We will be your guides during this magical journey into the movies. It's the perfect job for us because we love the movies. It's showtime! Ready when you are, CB! Action! Welcome to Monoreal Radio, episode number 80. I'm Sean. And I'm Jackie. Back once again talking late Disney Renaissance this week. We are discussing The Hunchback of Notre Dame from 1996. I have to ask you, was this one that you saw in theaters? Duh. What the dumb me? It's not implied that everybody has seen everything in the movies. We all have that one that somehow we missed out on in the movie theater. That's fair. Mine was Hercules. And, and that is irrational to me. So that's why I like to double check. But that's why I'm dying you. I mean, you know what kind of Disney fan I am. I was, I was at every single one except for Hercules. But I will give you that. It is a fair question because at the time... I was ten, we were 10 years old right. when this movie came out. Um, so at that point, you know, I think most families might start phasing Disney out when kids are that age. It was a little different for me because I have a brother who's four years younger than I am. So we were still going. But I mean, I would have been going anyway. I also ask because I feel like the opinion that you have of this movie does sort of hinge on whether you saw it in theaters for the first time or whether you saw it on VHS for the first time or whether you saw it on Disney Plus for the first time. Because I think that watching them in all of those mediums, you kind of get a different experience. We talked last week, for example, about how Pocahontas, in terms of the animation, does not at all hold up digitally. So we'll talk about whether or not this does, of course, once we get down to it. But I do think that the experience that you have when you see a movie for the first time certainly does affect how you view it moving forward. I would definitely agree with you there. And I think part of the difference is, too, and we didn't really touch on this last week. And I think part of that is because you and I have very... Dif differentiating opinions when it comes to Pocahontas and I was so focused on I, I knew going in that you didn't love that movie but what you actually didn't like about it so much was very surprising that I kind of forgot to bring this up last week is that you know we keep referring to this as the late renaissance the big difference with these films too is that they're not the fairy tales you know obviously they're not your princess movies but Pocahontas is based on reality. Right. Loosely, Hercules, loosely. yeah, is based on Greek mythology. Hunchback was based on a book, um, but not a fairy tale book. So these later movies were a little bit different. Yes. And I think that has to do with whether or not you went to see them. Yes, because I think the demographic that this movie targeted, certainly the demographic that Hercules targeted I do believe is vastly different from the audience and the demographic that a movie like, say, Pocahontas was sort of targeted to. Well, we did mention that last week, too, is that this this is where, because you just came off of such princess-heavy movies, this is where it started to take the turn to appeal to boys a little bit more. Right. And this film takes place in Paris in 1482. Gypsies sneak into Paris and are confronted by Judge Claude Frollo, who accidentally 
kills the female gypsy who is trying to protect her son. It turns out that the boy is deformed and Frollo decides to toss him down a well. However, the Notre Dame archdeacon approaches Frollo and accuses him of murder. For his crime, Frollo will need to raise the boy as his own, and he goes ahead and names him Quasimodo, and he also keeps him hidden in Notre Dame Cathedral. Well, 20 years later, Quasimodo is grown with only three friends in his life, gargoyles that are from the cathedral, because the Notre Dame Cathedral does have gargoyle uh, sculptures and statues attached to it, and they are named Victor, Hugo, get it, and Laverne, <laughs> who tell him that he should attend that day's Feast of Fools. Frollo arrives, and when he figures out Quasi's plan, he tells him that he can't go to the feast, although he decides that he's going to go anyway. Meanwhile, we meet the gypsy Esmeralda as she performs on the streets for money. Frollo's soldiers attempt to arrest her, but are stopped by Paris's new captain, Captain Phoebus, who is far more kind than Frollo is. Later at the festival, Esmeralda pulls Quasimodo on stage to compete for the title of King of Fools and is shocked to find that he, unlike the other people trying to win this crown, are not wearing a mask. Basically, you get crowned this if you're ugly, you make a stupid face, for all intents and purposes, and I'm, I'm sort, of, sort of being short with it, but that's that's basically how you win this title like the the king from the uh previous year was was a drunk for example well he is taunted and humiliated by frollo's men after he is crowned the king all while frollo watches and after being aided by esmeralda frollo sends his men to arrest her but she runs into notre dame cathedral after a scuffle with Phoebus, Frollo and his men arrive to arrest her, but Phoebus lies to Frollo in order to protect Esmeralda and tells him that she has claimed sanctuary and therefore cannot be arrested in the church. Um, she eventually makes her way up to the top of the cathedral where she finds Quasimodo and befriends him, which he mistakes for a physical attraction, a romantic, uh, or, or a, a romantic attraction, I should say. He helps her slip out of the cathedral, so she gifts him a pendant that serves as a map to the gypsy hideout, the Court of Miracles. Frollo, meanwhile, searches frantically for her in order to arrest her, all the while also being conflicted because he has now also... Uh, developed an attraction to her. When he eventually goes mad and sets fire to the home of an innocent family who he believes is protecting the gypsies, Phoebus gives up all allegiance to Frollo and rescues the family for which he is sentenced to death. Uh, upon attempting to escape from Frollo, he is shot with an arrow and left for dead in a river, but Esmeralda rescues him and brings him to Notre Dame to hide and heal. Quasimodo realizes that Phoebus and Esmeralda are in love and is initially heartbroken over this. Frollo returns and tells Quasimodo that he intends to attack the Court of Miracles the next day with a thousand men, 
But all the while, he's lying in order to bait Quasimodo because the truth is he does not really know where the Court of Miracles is. So Quasimodo and Phoebus use the pendant to find the court and tell everyone that Frollo is coming the next day. However, Frollo is already there having followed uh, Phoebus and Quasimodo to the court. He then captures the gypsies. Well, the next day, he has Quasimodo chained up at the cathedral and gives Esmeralda one last chance to give herself to him. But she spits in his face, and he prepares to burn her at the stake. Quasimodo breaks free from his chains and rescues her. He then pours molten lead out of the mouths of the gargoyles on the cathedral to keep people away. But Frollo and his men break through, and Frollo goes to the top of the cathedral to pursue Quasimodo and Esmeralda. After a scuffle, uh, scuffle, Frollo falls off the cathedral into the um, molten lead to his death. Quasimodo then falls as well, but is caught by Phoebus, whose hand Quasimodo presents to Esmeralda. They leave the cathedral, and the people of Paris embrace and accept Quasimodo following his heroic actions. So, in you know, this movie has a lot of mixed reviews, especially when it comes to tried-and-true film critics who hold Victor Hugo's original work, The Hunchback of Notre Dame, in such high regard, as they should. It is a brilliant piece of literature. But they use that as a jumping-off point to sort of trash this film for the cartooniness, I mean, it's an animated film, but for the cartooniness of the gargoyles, for the faux love story with Esmeralda. But I have to be honest with you, I think that the changes they made were necessary because Hunchback is a phenomenal story. But I think it's by far, if, if you just made a film based on that book without deviating I think it's far too dark for children. I mean, a lot of people will argue that this finished project is too dark for children. I agree. I think this is one of the darker films. It's done more subtly. Um, and we're going to talk about that when we get into Frollo a little bit. Yep. But um, by that logic, though, then Lion King sucks. <laughs> yeah, if you're exactly. saying that an adaptation is too cartoony. Give me a break. Yeah. I like that Clopin serves as the narrator at the very beginning of the film. It really does remind me of Aladdin. Aladdin. Yep. yep. Yeah, I have nothing to add on that. I That was something I picked up on right away, and I, I like it. I think that it didn't feel rip-off-y because it so worked for this story. Mm-hmm. And... Something that stuck out to me as a kid when I saw this in theaters for the first time, and it still kind of resonates with me now, is that talking about how dark it is and how different uh, tonally this movie is so different from anything else that Disney had really done up to this point, maybe Absolutely. aside from the Black Cauldron, in terms of the darkness of the story and the characters, but also some of the language. I remember, not that it's terribly foul language, of course, but I remember thinking to myself how astonishing it was that Frollo was going to send a child to hell. 
And when you're 10 years old and you're hearing an animated character say that in a Disney movie, it was a little startling. Not that I was offended by it, but to touch on what you had mentioned before, kind of making that shift where a 10-year-old boy would be interested in this movie, as dumb as it sounds, that's You have my attention. You have my attention. Undivided. This was one that was in heavy rotation throughout my childhood, but I really forgot how evil Frollo was because out of the gate, he kills Quasimodo's mother, then, like you said, tries to drown him, and then names him half-formed. Yeah. It is so dark right out of the gate. And we talked about this last week when we did Pocahontas. Not that Pocahontas is a dark film, but it's got some heavy, heavy subject matter. This is completely different in that it's both heavy subject matter and it does go very dark. Yeah. I also think that Frollo is immediately one of, as you just pointed out, one of the most diabolical villains, but I think that it gives him a lot of credibility because a knock that I had on, uh, forgive me because I've just forgotten his name because it doesn't mean anything to me. Ratcliffe. Ratcliffe uh, from Pocahontas is he does not look menacing. I think Frollo looks slightly more menacing than Ratcliffe. However, he's a lanky old man in a dress. Let's call it what it is, <laughs> in a purple hat. But but when he does this, it gives him immediate credibility as a as a terrifying villain. Well, yeah, you did criticize Ratcliffe for his pigtails, as you put it. And his pink ribbons. Right. But... It's funny you say lanky old man in a dress. You know, so is Jafar. But Jafar is pure evil. Jafar is more menacing, though, and I think it has to do with the bone structure and Mm. the jawline. The way he's animated, because Jafar looks snake-like. So when he does turn into a snake uh, at the end of that film, it's a very seamless transition. But Jafar also being in a quote-unquote dress as you put it that also softens him a little bit i think and it makes him more cartoony this is more traditional garb of the time period but as far as you know frollo's face and the way that he's drawn overall he does look like the more traditional villains yes he's almost like the female or, or the male lady tremaine if you will yes i think that's probably that's an incredibly spot-on comparison and observation. I, I I totally agree with you there. I also like Out of the Gate. Um, I like the religious undertones as I think it characterizes, I get there, um, the iconic cathedral so well. Yeah, I mean, that was something that we had kind of hit on last week was that we were surprised how Disney handled certain things like the language of the time. But we did say that we have an appreciation that they didn't shy away from what was true. And you would have done a disservice telling the story otherwise. And I think the same applies here because there's no, I mean, the the setting is a cathedral. There's no way to dance around the religious aspects. And I'm, same thing. I'm glad that they didn't shy away from it. You can't tell this story without it. And that's the thing. I think they had to commit to that out of the gate, knowing that they were adapting this to a film. I agree. And I want to say, without delving too much into the music and the animation, because we're going to do that in a little while here, I do want to point out that the total package mm. that is the first three minutes of this movie 
is one of the best openings of all time. I'm really glad that you bring that up because it's also one of the longest. Yes. To me, the beginning of this film feels like a play because you do get a little bit of a break from the lyric when Kloppen is singing. Kloppen, Kloppen, Kloppen. Um, no, Kloppen is what they did in Monty Python. <laughs> um, yes, you do get a little break from him singing, um, but it's still scored underneath. So it is still part of that same long sequence. And, you know, part of that too, the first shot, if this was... and. If they adapt it to live action, like, fingers crossed they keep it. It's one long take that, like, starts aerial and swoops through the streets. Um, and it's very impressive here because it's done CGI, but it does look like the multiplane camera. It's incredible. And if they do that live action, I mean, that's going to be amazing. The, the greatest one take, no edit shot is probably Touch of Evil, um, which is an Orson Welles film. Um but they could outdo it here if it's, they don't CGI close. it. And they will. Yeah. And <clears throat> we we talked about how with Pocahontas, and I do think that we're going to be care, uh, comparing this to Pocahontas quite a bit because these movies only came out a year apart from each other. So I, I do think that it is worth noting that we had a big problem with that forced fake multiplane camera that they tried to do in Pocahontas with the CGI. It is so much better in this movie, just a year later, that it is worth noting. I was going to say, it is amazing the difference that a year makes and how much better they got it. However, I will give them credit. Pocahontas was released the year before this. It was in production at the same time as The Lion King. Yeah. So you were still dealing with that early computer animation. But, you know, thank goodness they got it right because you couldn't have done the movie without these amazing crowd shots either. It's not just that one long shot that brings us into Paris and to the cathedral. It's, there are so many background characters in this film because you you needed that. You needed like the angry mob and not your Beauty and the Beast angry mob where it's a couple of farmers with pitchforks. Yeah, You needed a lot of people because this is the city. Um and in Pocahontas, I remember specifically in uh, Ratcliffe's song, mm -hmm. even as a child, I recognized the copy and paste. There's that one shot where they're all swaying, and it's the same characters. It's like eight characters, and they're just in rows of four, but it's like the same four of them. Here they got it right, where they finally figured out how you could take the same body but dress it with different hair different clothes and make it move differently than the character that it's standing next to and I mean it's really effective here and I think that it has to be because you're trying to draw this narrative that Frollo is very much in control of this city it is his city and people are living in fear and I think that you had to really characterize the mob and give them a face and give them such dynamic expression. And now we really are getting into the animation here. But um, I, think it, I think it's a necessity because it's juxtaposed so well against really what Quasimodo is going through because 
while he has this beautiful view of the city and he builds his model of the city, he still he still lives in fear of Frollo as well. And he, within himself, is brainwashed by Frollo. So that, compared with, you know, like you said, the quote-unquote angry mob sort of thing, but it's more like an angsty mob more than anything else because I think that they know how under his thumb they are. And then you've got the gypsies who are literally living in seclusion to the best of their abilities. There's definitely unrest. And you make a really good point, too, because Frollo's really not afraid of anyone or anything except Esmeralda. And we're going to get into that. But even the archdeacon can't put him in his place. Barely. But it's not necessarily because Frollo's afraid of the archdeacon. It's because he's God-fearing. And that's what, obviously, the archdeacon represents. Yeah. I want to talk about these gargoyles for a minute. Because you see them almost from the jump. As soon as we get through the opening number and through the opening scene and into the first shot, really, of Quasimodo as an adult, he's 20 years old, we see these gargoyles. And he's speaking with them, and they're kind of egging him on to go down to the Feast of Fools. As soon as Frollo comes in, they turn back to stone. But I have to ask you... Are they really alive, or is this Quasimodo's inner monologue? Is this all in his head? Because I honestly don't know. I'm really glad you bring that up, because that was something that I didn't realize until this viewing either, that it is very possible they're figments of his imagination. Um, But what I like, first of all, I like the choice that they made to do the gargoyles and not give him, like, an animal sidekick friend because you do have Jolly, but like I feel like a pigeon or something would yeah. have been such a cop out in this case. Yeah. Um and they're they're such fun characters. Um so I think that it was a really smart choice to do that because for all intents and purposes, Quasimodo is completely isolated. There's no reason he's not talking to himself or, you know, pretending he has friends up there. Right. Um But to answer your question, I do think that they're real because later when the cathedral gets stormed, they do help him save it and save Esmeralda. Um, But they do establish it right away when Frollo visits because they freeze and they do remain in their place. It's not like um, it's not like Toy Story when Andy's coming. Yeah. I mean, it is in the sense of they freeze and, and they just drop, but like the toys have to go back to where he left them. True. The gargoyles just drop. They just are where they are. I think this whole thing does a good job of setting up Quasimodo as a character too because you needed to make him likable and you needed to feel bad for him more than him being the deformed hunchback who I believe like people know about him, but they know about him through folklore, I think, more than anything else, because they all know that there's a bell ringer, but they've never seen him before. So to give him this setting where he has this beautiful view and he's so proud of what he has mm-hmm. and he has names for the bells and he goes from spot to spot and he's got the best view of the city and he does have the model, as I pointed out before, but Frollo comes in and as soon as Frollo walks in, you know, because Quasimodo is 
a strong human being to ring those bells. But as soon as Frollo walks in, you just see the demeanor change and his shoulders shrink and he kind of shrivels up into a smaller man. It's like a frightened dog. That's exactly right. So I think everything they did up to this scene does a fantastic job of giving you a protagonist that you can really get behind. Absolutely. And including including this scene too, because the first thing that he does is they, they practice his ABCs, but they're all religious term and not just religious terms, but they're, they're, they're like the God fearing religious yeah. term, abomination, like blasphemy or, uh, contrition. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, so it definitely, it also establishes relationship to Frollo as well. Yeah. It's quick dialogue, but it's really, really well done here. And then you do meet um, the next group of characters here, Esmeralda and Phoebus. And this is a really, really good scene, too, because, again, you know that Frollo has control of this city, and you see it really amped up when Esmeralda is performing for very, very little money. You know, it's whatever pocket change people are throwing her for dancing on the street. And his men basically just, they want to take her money away. They try to arrest her simply for being there. And then you get Phoebus that shows up. And um, you see that he's he's very much going to stick to the plan. He's going to stick to his code, but he has a moral compass. So, again, it's very quick. The scene is not very long, but this movie in totality does a really good job of pacing backstory and pacing itself so that it cuts through all the stuff that tends to drag on in movies when you're trying to develop backstory too hard to get to the juice of the action. That's a good point, too, because... There's that little throwaway line that Phoebus has just gotten back from the war. So you get a little bit about who he is in the dialogue, but a lot more comes through in the action here. And they really develop the character almost immediately. And that carries over to the Feast of Fools. This is a brilliant setup for Quasimodo that they finally convince him to leave and take a chance and go explore the world outside. And of course it's this day and he's so looking forward to this festival. And then what happens? From the highest of highs to the lowest of lows. Esmeralda pulls him up on stage and she has a throwaway line because he kind of falls into her tent where she's getting changed. And she quickly grabs like a towel and covers herself up. And you know she's not wearing anything underneath that. Um, and we'll talk more about her as a character and how she's drawn and everything else once we really start delving into them as individual characters. But I do think that that is worth noting right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and as she helps him out, she goes, hey, great mask. And he kind of just looks for a second, but he goes along with it. Right. Um when they realize there is no mask and he wins this trophy to be the king of fools, you feel so good for him because they're all basically it's 
he doesn't understand that it's not going to be a term of endearment. And the fact is, you know that there's a negative connotation to it, but because they are so excited to have him crowned with this title, you think that they're just going to embrace him. It, the whole thing kind of reminded me of the scene out of the Jim Carrey Grinch movie when he is crowned, not King of Christmas, but when they uh, when they have their, their Christmas festival in Whoville and mm-hmm. he is their um, guest of honor. Yes. That's sort of where you think this is going to go. And similar to that movie... The highest of highs to the lowest of lows very quickly. Well, in both films, though, I don't think it intentionally starts out that way. But in this case, it almost reminds me of Carrie, where Mm. they make her prom queen, but they're not doing it to celebrate her. They're doing it to ridicule her. And I don't think that that was their intention. I mean... This story obviously came way before Stephen King wrote Carrie. But in this case, I don't think it was intentional. Um, I think this scene also demonstrates that crowd mentality because of the way that they turn on him. Because once Esmeralda goes to pull his quote-unquote mask off and they realize it's his real face, the crowd is shocked. But then they do start to celebrate him. And Quasimodo's enjoying his moment in the sun. And it's not until Frollo turns everything and then the guards start throwing fruit at him and it's Frollo's men because they were they were commanded to do that then the crowd turns and they view him as a monster but the other thing is that you know they've got him all roped up too and it's it's like I said before it's like he's a frightened animal like of course you're going to react to that it's your first time being amongst people and you're afraid and they tied you up like of course you're going to you're going to fight back a little bit. Yeah, visually, it's a very tough watch. But I think it does serve its purpose. Other than you feeling bad for Quasimodo and helping move the story forward, you see, again, Phoebus is conflicted. He's got that moral compass. We talked about it before. And then you see Esmeralda is the only one that wants to jump to his aid. So it does a lot in further developing her character. Because up to this point in time, all you've really seen of her is covering herself up in a towel and performing for money. And all you know about the gypsies is that they're evil because that's what Frollo tells you. So I think that it's also important to develop her this way because you can see that she's not just on the side of a gypsy. And it's not even that she's also on the side of the outcast, although she is. She's really just anti-Frollo more than anything else. And I think that that certainly helps in developing the conflict that happens later with Frollo. Internally, that is, within you know, in his own mind. I think she's anti-Frollo. I think she's definitely anti-establishment. But she's also, you know, it sets up that she is a kind-hearted person. Because when she realizes that Quasimodo's not wearing a mask, she winces. But I don't think it's because she's afraid of him. I think it's because she realized what she's done and that yeah. she exposed him. Yeah. Um, and she's, yeah, the first person who goes to his aid. And it shows, you know, that not only is she sympathetic to the outcast, but she's just a good-hearted person. You also see Frollo is just getting more and more sinister as this entire scene plays on because Phoebus is the one that says, 
we need to stop this. And Frollo says, no, there's a lesson that needs to be learned here. And while it's not his birth child, and he doesn't really care about Quasimodo anyway, this is the person that he has raised as his own son, and he wants the public ridicule so that Quasimodo learns to not disobey him moving forward. But even more so, when Esmeralda takes hiding into uh, the cathedral and Phoebus lies about the sanctuary, Frollo doesn't know that that's a lie. Phoebus says she has declared sanctuary. And Frollo's responses will then drag her outside and arrest her. So his wheels are already starting to turn that he doesn't care. It's like parlay, right? In Pirates of the Caribbean. It's basically the same thing. Mm -hmm. But even the pirates in that film... Respect the code. Respect the code. Frollo doesn't respect anything but Frollo. Right. And it's not, again, until the Archdeacon steps in that he obeys the sanctuary. Yeah, there's there's a lot happening as we transition scenes here because you're right. Frollo, everything is escalating. He's been disobeyed by Quasimodo. His guard doesn't react to his command right away. And Esmeralda pretty much humiliates him. So, of course, he's going to go after her. And this is where the story really starts to shift. I wouldn't say tonally because... It's already pretty dark, but it does get a little bit darker here because you realize that he wants Esmeralda more so than because she is a gypsy and what her lifestyle represents and that he is looking for the court of miracles so that he can get rid of all of the gypsies. It does create a little bit of a sexual tension because when he's got her he's you know he's holding her with her hands behind her back and she does call him out on it yeah and he dismisses it right away and as a child I think that for me that's where it just kind of put the thought out of my mind but watching it again now you realize and it's amazing because it layers the story so much more it makes it so much more dynamic um that it's really not about his battle against the gypsies. It's, uh, it's his moral battle. It's an inner struggle. Yeah, because it, it's not really about him versus Esmeralda or him versus the Court of Miracles. It's about him versus his own sin. And the scariest part about him, and he he continues to develop more and more and more as he goes more mad and more mad, as the movie goes on, because I do believe that's sort of what happens here. I do think he just continues to become more and more unhinged. The scariest part is how self, self-righteous he is mm. and how, in spite of all of this, he believes he's doing good. And when he eventually gets his solo, which we'll talk about when we break down the music in a few minutes here, that's where it especially comes to light and where he basically out and out says that he's got this attraction to Esmeralda and he's begging for God's forgiveness and all of that because he's having these unpure thoughts. I mean, I basically just broke the whole song down right there. So I'm going (laughs) to repeat myself in five minutes, but um, just the way that he articulates, but I'm a good man and I'm this and I'm that he, he believes in his own mind. He's sort of brainwashed himself. All of the evil that he has done, 
he believes is justifiable. See, I, I disagree with you there. I don't think he believes he's really good. I think this is his cover story. And he's trying to make it seem like his intentions are good by getting rid of the gypsies and sin and this horrible lifestyle where it's covering up for his own sin with his feelings towards Esmeralda, who also has really great character development in this scene. I mean, we're going to talk about her song later, but, you know, it says a lot when she frees Quasimodo, then she outsmarts Frollo, and you see that she's a very strong character here, but to me, her confinement in the sanctuary is shows that she's even stronger because she's willing to stay in the stone you know they say gypsies don't do well in stone walls and she's willing to stay there so as not to expose the rest of her people right and you do see her get into a fight with phoebus in which she bests him in every which way so mentally she's very strong physically she's very strong she's sort of an anti well i don't want to say she's the anti-hero it's she's a hero with attitude. Definitely. So I think that it works for her. I think this entire scene works to further develop that. And the other thing that this scene does very well is that it paints a very sad picture of Quasimodo. Not just because there's another person other than Frollo that has seen this life of confinement that he has, but you see how conscious he is of being good and for having a heart. But at the same time, he's so incredibly brainwashed by Frollo because he's down on himself and has no self-confidence. He's down on the gypsies and calls them evil because that's what Frollo told him to do. So he's a very conflicted character, and that comes out in spades in this scene. You're absolutely right, and I think it serves as a very powerful metaphor for what happens when you're told to think a certain way your entire life and that you don't know that it's okay to have another opinion or that there even are other opinions out there. And I love that Esmeralda starts to show him that, especially because she is from such a different mentality than he is used to. Um, I love that it comes out in the palm reading scene. I think that's like a really touching moment between them. Yeah, when she um, says there's no monster lines. Yeah, I think I think that's just a really sweet moment because she's being so nice to him and, you know, he's obviously falling for her more and more with each passing moment, but it's still so innocent, um, which is, you know, very fitting for him. But what I also really love is that he's not afraid of her, where... You know, they could have played it like the bumbling guy around his crush. And we do have that moment, but like it's past. It's when he crashes in the tent and she's naked under a sheet. And like you have the awkward moment. So I'm glad that they didn't carry it through here where he can't even talk to her. And they they were able to relate to each other and have a conversation. You mean like Preston and Chase from Blank Check? <laughs> I was thinking like Kristoff in Frozen too, but tomato, tomato. Sure. Yeah, that scene is absolutely spectacular from top to bottom, the way that it's animated. And again, as they continue to peel back more and more layers of these characters, um, 
but I want to uh, I want to jump ahead. I can't even say a little bit. I want to jump ahead a lot of it here, if you don't mind. I'm going to throw a scene at you, and if there's something in between you want to talk about, then we're going to put a pin in what I have to say. No, my next notes are, are further ahead, so okay. go for it. I want to talk about the scene when Quasimodo realizes that she is not attracted to him, and she is attracted to Phoebus. Jokingly, I bring up blank check, but I actually think there's a comparison here. Okay. We sort of joked it off as being irrational and unbelievable. And totally inappropriate. That an 11-year-old boy would actually believe that they have a chance with somebody much older than them, an adult woman. Okay. And... Where this scene is very painful is that even though Quasimodo's a grown man, and it's not to say that love is only skin deep, per se, but you as the viewer know what's going to happen. Right. He doesn't. And it's the first time that romantically he's felt a heartache before. Well, why is that? It's because... He's never had this before in his life. So he has, in his mind, he falls in love because she touched his hand and was nice to him. It's a very childish, juvenile sort of love. And I sort of compare that to Blank Check, where Preston believes that he actually has a chance with this woman. And it's his brother that says... She wants a man with no, with money, not a kid with an empty piggy bank. It's done comedically, of course, but I do think there is a parallel there. I really want to argue this absurd parallel, but I can't. It's you're you're absolutely right. It's kind of it's a very similar situation, um, and it crushes my soul every time. Yeah, uh, in Hunchback, we're talking about. Let's be clear. Preston got what was coming to him. Um, he got kissed on the mouth I, by a 30-year-old woman. Don't get me started again. Uh, go back and listen to it. It was a couple of weeks ago. Happy birthday, Preston. <laughs> um, anyway, yeah. I, I think um, I think it does go a little bit deeper than Quasimodo's got a crush on the first really person that he's interacted with so you're right it is very childlike in that sense but I think once he realizes how kind Esmeralda is and what a good person she is I think it does delve a little bit deeper into actual feelings more so than just you know this pretty girl who can dance well and was nice to me I'm crushing on um but yeah I mean it 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 sets it up so that it breaks your heart when it happens you're right there with him what makes this scene so different from so many other scenes when it comes to a leading man and a leading lady getting together in a Disney film? First off, they don't get together. Um, the leading man and the leading lady don't because she gets together with Phoebus. But another Pocahontas parallel is that they don't get the romantic happy ending. Back to back films. They did that in back to back films. Um, but it's a very, again, talking about a film that has sort of grown up with its audience, I think, as we are getting into the later Disney Renaissance and the audience that grew up with the earlier films are also getting older. Um, Again, let's not 
confuse this with me being offended because I'm not offended by nonsense like this. I'm really not. But it does bear a conversation because it is a keen observation, I think, that this is a very long, passionate kissing scene between Phoebus and Esmeralda. And they try to... It's not until you've seen the movie a few times that you realize they kind of hide it a little bit because your eye changes focus to Quasimodo because he's in the foreground and they're in the background. I'm not going to go so far as to say that they're making out because that, that seems a bit inappropriate. But... They're going at it. It's not like the kiss between uh, a couple in any other Disney film that we've ever seen. Mm. Not up to that point. The Pocahontas kiss is a little long, but I, I think they do it strategically in both Pocahontas and here. In Pocahontas, you've got Coco and watching from one end and Thomas watching on the other. So to cut to where all your other characters are watching this happen, it does drag out a little bit. And because we're in the Quasimodo seat, and we're supposed to be sympathizing with him. I mean, that's the thing. The movie's kind of counterintuitive at this point because you want to root for the happy couple, but we're supposed to be sympathizing with Quasimodo. So in his mind, this kiss is probably drawing out forever. And, you know, he's just got to sit back there and take it. And I think that that's the tension that they're trying to create for the audience. And it's, it's very effective. Any longer, and it would have come off as comedic, I think. Um, or it would have got a PG-13 rating. But, yeah, it's it does further... I mean, it, their agenda was to further the point that Quasimodo is heartbroken and that you as a viewer should be heartbroken on his behalf. And I think that they pull that off perfectly. Absolutely. The other thing that they pull off perfectly is how Frollo baits Quasimodo and Phoebus into leading him directly into the Court of Miracles. Right, but you can kind of see that coming from a mile away because earlier Quasimodo helps Esmeralda escape and Frollo figures it out. So once he puts the two and two together, you know that he knows that Quasimodo is going to lead you right to her. Yeah, and he kind of has that little smirk as he's walking down the stairs after he leaves the bait for Quasimodo, so to speak. Right. What's interesting to me is once we get to the Court of Miracles, Clopin is there. Clopin's kind of like, he's. It, it's different from Aladdin in that, well, kind of, because the narrator is the genie in the live action. Right. In the animated, it's debatable, but I maintain that he is the peddler who is the narrator. But anyway, um, it's interesting to see the narrator like actually inserted into the film because... He's not just singing the bells of Notre Dame in the beginning. He's, you know, he's the MC of the Feast of Fools. And now he's like the host at the Court of Miracles. But what's kind of weird to me, and this is really my only criticism of this movie, is that Clopin turns at this point because he captures Quasimodo and Phoebus right out of the gate. And it's like, you know who Quasimodo is. You've already met yeah. him a little bit earlier on. I mean, he might not trust Phoebus because Phoebus is one of the guards, 
and okay, maybe to be fair, he thinks that Quasimodo works for Frollo. So I understand, I guess, where you don't trust him. But like you saw what happened to him when he was crowned the King of Fools. So I'm just surprised that he's not more sympathetic towards him. He and seems, they just capture him. Yeah, he, he seems to turn on a dime very quickly. And then he turns turns on a dime very quickly again, and he's the one that says three cheers for Quasimodo at the end of the movie. So, yeah, he, he kind of pivots a lot here. I, I sort of understand why, because I think they're all being very overprotective in trying to protect the Court of Miracles and themselves and their loved ones. But I will And who agree. could blame them? I, and I can't, I can't blame them, but I can agree with you. It is a bit jarring how he shifts in his opinion and in his demeanor. I mean, it it certainly doesn't ruin the story by any stretch of imagination, but it's just, I, I wish I had a little bit more motivation behind it. Yeah. When Frollo does come in and he takes them all, it's a very tough scene to watch. He also sounds like Paul Frees there, who is the narrator of the Haunted Mansion. It wasn't until that scene where he gets the echo in the court that to me he sounds so much like that narrator. Yeah, you're right. But anyway, getting to the end of the film here, I mean, you want to talk about juxtaposition, it's hellfire and brimstone. Literally. Pouring off of the Notre Dame Cathedral, which unfortunately, the circumstances being what they are now, you know, it's, it, it's, and I think it's especially a very tough visual after you know, the fire that, that happened there last year. Everybody knows what unfortunately happened. And I do think that that's going to have an effect on the live-action remake, and we're going to talk about our Dreamcast for that in just a few minutes here. But putting that out of my mind, the juxtaposition is fantastic. Yes, and I don't want to be... I don't want this to sound insensitive because of what happened, but I would be remiss not to mention how beautiful this animation is. Right. Throughout. I mean, throughout the film. Throughout the film, but in that sequence in particular, I mean, they, they really, you know, made the fire glow and and it, you know, the way it casts the light on the cathedral, yeah. it, it looks really pretty. Yeah. Um, but other than that, I don't have much to say about the way this movie ends. It, The way the movie ends is sort of predictable. Um, every excuse I have to bring up Batman, I will do it. <laughs> the, the 1989 Batman, uh, Michael Keaton vehicle um, directed by Tim Burton with Jack Nicholson playing the Joker. Um, they go to the roof of the building that they are on and oh, there's yeah. a bell tower. And um, the difference between how that ends and how this ends is that Frollo is standing on a gargoyle as he is trying to kill Quasimodo and Esmeralda with a sword, and it just gives out and he falls into the abyss. In Batman, uh, he is trying to leave on a helicopter, and Keaton, as Batman, fires like a Gatling gun, and it gets hooked. Uh, one side gets hooked on his foot. The other side gets hooked on a gargoyle mm. that breaks free. And because it is so heavy and the Joker cannot hang on to the ladder, falls from the bell tower to his death. So I'm not saying that film in particular is what made this predictable, but 
with that being said, at the time, that Batman movie was only seven years old. And when Frollo's going, listen, if you go up, there's only one place to go, and it's down. Right. So when Frollo goes up, you know he's you know he's not going to make it off that bell tower. You know he's falling off the top, similar to uh, uh, Beauty and the Beast as well. See, that's more what I was thinking of. I think they had to be very careful. Our minds go to two different places. They do, but I'm watching this play out, and they did have to be very careful not to make this too much like Gaston's death, and especially too because the Beast he hunches over to hide himself within the gargoyles. Um, that is really my only other criticism of this film. I don't love that Frollo just falls. Like, I wish we would have seen Quasimodo man up and push him off. The other thing that doesn't really make a lot of sense is that Quasimodo is able to swing and it's able to support his weight. Granted, he's swinging, he's like barely touching the gargoyles or any of the stones that he's moving from. Um, but Quasimodo looks like a heavy guy. I find it a little hard to believe that he's able to swing from these things and Frollo's not able to stand on them. I agree. To be fair, though, the cathedral's burning, so it might have weakened everything. I don't know. The other thing is I don't know that you could have Quasimodo kill a man. I I, I don't yeah. I don't disagree with you that I wish it would have been something more than just Frollo's basically a victim of circumstance. Let's call it what it is. So he gets his comeuppings in the fact that he's dead, but he is not defeated by the people that he is trying to defeat. That's it. like no one gets even. There's no revenge. But I mean, I guess that's it. Quasimodo already doesn't get the girl. It's like now you're gonna make him a killer. No. It's just, it would be so uncharacteristic of him otherwise. So I, 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 see where, I see where your criticism of that is valid, but I also understand why they didn't go that route. I mean, you could have also put Quasimodo in the position where he can, you know, save one or the other. And especially because Phoebus isn't with them. Esmeralda's trying to hang on. So if it was making a choice between Phoebus, who's stealing your girl, or Frollo, and Frollo could have made the plea of, I raised you, don't do this, and you have to pick one or the other, it would have, you know, just given Quasimodo that one more, not that he doesn't have a character arc, but it would have just driven the point home a little bit further, you know, who he really is, is that he let Frollo go, even though he took care of them, and saved the guy who's going to steal his girl to make Esmeralda happy. Right. So we really just did a lot of character right there. So I think it's only natural that we kind of do discuss character a little bit here. Sure. So Tom Halsey, who a lot of you know as Pinto from Animal House, voices Quasimodo. Um, we said it before, Quasimodo is a great protagonist. There's very little about him that I have qualms with. No, he's such a lovable character, and, you know, we did kind of talk about the animation a little bit, but I do think it's worth noting that what's amazing that they achieved here is that they did make him look deformed without being scary, but a lot of that is because of the personality traits that make him so lovable. It softens his exterior. And that's the whole point, is that you're supposed to look past 
the surface at what's underneath. But for a children's movie that is supposed to convey the deformity, they did a good job of not making not making it so scary that kids are not going to be able to sit through it. Esmeralda is played by Demi Moore. And what's interesting about this character, and it makes all the sense in the world, when you really look at Esmeralda, the way that she moves, even, you know, the way that she is physically constructed. She's hot. I'm just going to say it. They use Demi Moore basically as the model. They were doing that more and more at this point. Um, especially we had talked about rotoscoping in Pocahontas. They started implementing, um, instead of just sketching based off of live action, they shot it and they traced it frame by frame. I think that she certainly paved the way for some other... uh, It's not an anti-hero. I'd said that before. It's the, the hero with attitude. I think she paved the way for future... Disney characters like Megara. Meg, yeah, uh, without question, um, and I think it shows a shift in thinking when it comes to a character. And I think that certainly the way that she moves, the way that Meg moves in terms of body language, they parallel very well, especially because Hercules had come out not too long after that. But I think certainly you can draw a comparison to Jessica Rabbit in terms of, let's just call it what it is. You said she's hot, right? She's, she is what she is. She is animated a certain way. Uh, I'll just leave that there. But I think the difference between her and a Jessica Rabbit, because I've, I've heard this comparison before the thing with Jessica Rabbit and part of what I think makes her, an attractive character other than the way that she is drawn, because she's not bad, she's just drawn that way, is that (laughs) she is that mysterious femme fatale. You don't really have that here with Esmeralda because they flesh her out very quickly Mm -hmm. that she does have a heart. I would say Jessica Rabbit and Megara are definitely more femme fatale, but as far as Esmeralda goes, I mean, yes, the way that her and Meg and even... Pocahontas are drawn are all very similar. You wouldn't think so with Pocahontas because she's in more traditional clothing, especially for the time period that that's taking place. But she does, like, I'm thinking specifically when she's trailing John Smith before they meet. She's very, like, slinky. Yeah. And it's a little bit more overt here because Esmeralda is dancing, but I think that all does go back to the rotoscoping and that you're really going off of the human movement. Um, But what I like here that makes her different, I mean, obviously she's not a Disney princess, but they really drive that home with the voice casting because Demi Moore has such like a deep, husky, sexy voice that you're totally anti-princess here. Yeah, she's she's totally anti-princess. And that goes, I mean, that's kind of been her her entire career because you can even go back to when she was very young and she was in St. Elmo's Fire. Mm. And she 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 was a character in that film that, you know, she had her demons that she had to battle. But in spite of it all, she still comes out victorious at the very end. 
So she's always sort of played that kind of character. I hate. I don't want to say she's typecast because then you see her do something like G.I. Jane and then you do something like Ghost. I, I know I'm kind of jumping around a lot here. But so has her career. It has. It has. But at the root of it, I think the way that she played her character in St. Elmo's Fire is very close to how she played Esmeralda here. If that makes any sense whatsoever, just with that dark sort of deep raspy voice yeah absolutely and i love jolly we haven't acknowledged jolly yet but i love him yeah i want to talk about phoebus for a minute too played by kevin klein kevin klein's great kevin kevin klein is great in everything Always. that he does he's great in this movie but this character could have been anybody of all of the characters in this film, I think he is the most forgettable. I mean, here's the thing. You can't have him outshine Quasimodo. Right. You have to make him likable enough where we understand why Esmeralda is attracted to him. Other than just that he's a... a I mean, you can call him a hero and because he does save Quasimodo. He, he does save her. He lets her go. That's the equivalent of saving her because he didn't arrest her. Um... So you really had to toe that line because if you make him too heroic and too likable, we have no reason to feel bad for Quasimodo. Yeah, agreed. I'm just saying, like, he serves a purpose in the film, but I don't sit there and go, oh, my God, this guy was such an underrated character the way I feel about Frollo. I mean, they developed the character really quickly because... You know, they do establish that he is the good guy, even though he is under Frollo's command by letting Esmeralda go. And I'm not even just talking about faking or telling her to lie about claiming sanctuary. I'm talking about with the coins that he gives them back to her and he doesn't say anything about it. You know, it's kind of a wink and a nod that he's one of the good guys. And you learn that very early on. But like from there, it's not like they gave him... Like, he doesn't have, like, that swagger that John Smith does. Or he's not, like, overly charismatic. He's not hysterically funny. So as far as, like, what makes him attractive as a guy, yeah, there's not a lot of that there. I mentioned before Frollo. I think he's completely underrated. I think he's underappreciated. Tony J plays him in the movie. I think that... He is one of the most forgotten about Disney villains, which is sort of funny because when you go to MGM Studios and you see Fantasmic, he's he's one of the projections in that show. He was actually really rude to me at MGM, so I've not forgotten about Frollo. I mean, did you expect him to be nice to you? Nobody took my hat off my head when I was about 10 years old and then he sniffed it and threw it on the ground. Yeah, I don't have anything. For, that's that's very be bizarre behavior. <laughs> I, I kind of don't have anything for that. I mean, like, I know you're a villain, but, like, we're still at the parks. And you did that to a kid. Okay. Um, you know what I like about him most of all? He reminds me of Hugh Laurie's character from Tomorrowland, which we reviewed on episode number 62, because there's no selfish gain here. 
he's not motivated by trying to climb the ranks. He's not motivated by trying to get more powerful. He's motivated because he's basically just trying to keep something. You want to talk about sanctuary, both in his mind and physically on the streets of Paris, he's trying to keep things pure. And he is self-righteous, and he thinks he's doing everything the right way in spite of himself. It's the same thing in Tomorrowland. Wow. That's a really great connection there. Um, Yeah, you know, I I had mentioned this before. I am surprised that Disney really didn't shy away from him lusting after Esmeralda. I think that it definitely layers the story more. And it certainly layers the character. But I'm surprised they actually carried that all the way through. Um, You know, and it's interesting that you say there was no personal gain for him. Like, you're right. He's not seeking power. He's not seeking money or anything. status. But he is, you know, at the time that this was supposed to be taking place people were very god-fearing and it was all about religion so the personal gain for him i really think is the difference between heaven and hell well i think part of that too in in, to touch on what you just said about disney not shying away from the attraction between esmeralda well not the attraction between them but the attraction that he has towards esmeralda is that without that, they're just playing cat and mouse. You might as well be watching Wile E. Coyote chase after the Roadrunner. So I, you needed something else there. Truth. I want to talk about the gargoyles for a second here. Absolutely. I think that they are a perfect fit for this film because I think that they lighten the mood so well. I think you needed that in this film because Jason Alexander was quoted once as saying that he would not take his four-year-old daughter to go see this movie. I think it was his daughter, but it was his four-year-old child. He would not have allowed them to see it due to the darkness of the film. Really? Yeah, which is a surprise because he championed this movie so much. No, but I think he, he, he rec- loves Hugo. He loves the part that he played. But he, I think he recognizes how good this movie is for the older audience. So take a star from the film who's saying it's too dark even with the gargoyles. Take them out of it, and I, I just think it's way too over the head of a kid. That's true. No, and I, I said it before. I appreciate that they didn't just do an animal sidekick for Quasimodo, especially because the three of them balance each other so well. I think you needed the three, and that does come full circle when they need to save the cathedral, but... Because the three of them are so different, they just play off of each other so well, especially when it comes to giving him advice, especially regarding Esmeralda and his love life and, you know, supporting him. They each kind of take a different approach to it to try and help him. Yeah. Speaking of Jason Alexander, I love him in this movie. Yeah. I wish that we would have seen more of Jason Alexander in Disney. I, I wish we we still had more of him in Disney. You know, it's never too late. <laughs> but but he is. I, I I loved him on Seinfeld. I thought he was devastatingly funny on that show, which was amazing that a kid my age found that show funny at the age that I did. But I've been ten going on forty since I was six. So 
so it makes a lot of sense. I would love to see more of him now because I think that, especially with, I think, comedy in general kind of taking this sort of tongue-in-cheek sort of quirkiness that's kind of become the trend in comedy, especially, you know, now that we are like post-Apatow era of comedy Mm -hmm. and post-Hangover, I feel like his comedic timing, the way he delivers his lines, I think would be so perfect for a comedic role right now. He's one of those roles where it's like, you know, we talked about it when we discussed Hercules, where it's like, don't recast Phil. Or like The Lion King, don't recast Mufasa. Just keep him right where he's at if you do the live action. Absolutely. Let's talk about the soundtrack here before we get into our dream cast. The first song, and now this was... um, Again, Alan Menken and Stephen Schwartz, which uh, I failed to mention last week in Pocahontas, they got both Academy Awards for Best Score and Best Original Song in Pocahontas. And they put the dynamic duo back together again for this one. Yeah. I'll get this out of the way quickly. The score is absolutely beautiful. It works with the city. It works with the cathedral. It's one of the best scores. It's one of the most underrated scores, I think, in the history of the company. Absolutely. Because to me, in my mind the score is so tied to that visual. It's almost, it's like a Jaws thing. Yeah. You know, where, where you, you hear it and you can picture the shark before you even see it. Right. It, you give character to an inanimate object. Yes. Or something without a voice. The Bells of Notre Dame, the first song that you see in the film, it really, it's, it's from the jump. I think that it gives the city a character. I think it sets up the film beautifully. It gives backstory quickly without making it feel rushed. You're not trying to stuff 10 pounds of stuff into a five-pound bag, It's which sometimes can happen. Mm-hmm. Sometimes can happen, especially with musicals, when they try to jam too much too quickly so that they can just get it over with and move on. It's, it's restrained here. It's done perfectly. The animation works in concert with the with the the music it i said it before it's one of the best openings in the history of of any disney film if not the best it's uh, it's up there with circle of life yeah you'd be you'd be hard to knock that one out of the top you're right but very close second um yeah the the whole sequence is amazing but what i really like is that they used a full chorus because like you said it, it does give a voice and it it obviously lends to the animation but again it's that big crowd and you created a sound for the crowd out there four minutes and 25 seconds long doesn't feel it it doesn't feel it it's forgotten it's underappreciated it is an all-time great number because quasimodo's motivation is hashed out in this four minutes and 25 seconds. It's heart-wrenching and it's heart-lifting all at the same time. And I go so far as to say that outside of Bellinati, this just may be the best male solo in company history. Uh, I think it is. Um... 
yeah, again, the entire sequence is amazing. Every time I watch it, that last note fades out and I'm like, nailed it. It's just perfect, the whole thing. And what's interesting, too, I think a lot of people forget is that Frollo actually starts this song off. And what I love about it, too, it lends to the characters because Frollo is singing about out there being a dangerous place. And then when the song transitions to Quasimodo's part, it takes on a completely different meaning. And it's so much more uplifting and hopeful. And like you said, it it gives us his motivation. But more than that it it really makes you feel for him and i love seeing it projected on the castle at walt disney world at the magic kingdom the only part of that show that i don't hate i'm gonna let you take topsy-turvy because i waxed poetic and i felt like i left you with very little to say well no i mean you said everything perfectly i agree with you a thousand percent out there is the perfect number i i i really don't even know what else to add to that? Well, you can take topsy-turvy because I know you love you some topsy-turvy. I do. It. This is such a fun sequence. I love, I love it. They edited as almost if it was a live action film because it's so quick. Usually, and I mean, animation is such hard work. You know, we, we've talked about the painstaking lengths that they go through to draw out these movies. So of course you're going to be married to what you've drawn. You don't want to just rush through it, but like towards the end of this song, it's like rapid fire and you know, it's cut in sync to the music and you're getting all these visuals of all the crazy masks and everything. Um, Yeah. It's, it's a great number. It's really fun. Yeah. That's, that's my note. It's just plain fun. This was, I mean, it's not like the Under the Sea, the Be Our Guest, the Friend Like Me fun. As far as your placement in the film and like when it happens, sure. But it's just not as big as those other numbers. But I don't think you needed one of the, I mean, you do have the Gargoyle song a little bit later, but like this film is not tonally on that same level where you didn't need the over-the-top sidekick song agreed i i I agree that you don't need the over the top uh sidekick song but i disagree in that i think that this song is almost as good and almost as big and almost as triumphant uh triumphant as under the sea Wow. I don't think it's not quite as good, but I think that it's there. It's an earworm. It's a ton of fun. But so much of this movie, for whatever reason, whether it was people thinking it was too dark at the time that it came out, I I don't know what it is, but I feel like this movie has gotten so swept under the rug in the last 24 years up to the time of this recording, 24 years, that this is just another thing that gets swept away, just like God Help the Outcasts. Oh, this is probably... Well, I don't want to say it's my favorite song in the movie because Out There is so brilliant, but this is probably one of the most, like you said, underrated and underappreciated songs in the catalog. The whole sequence is absolutely stunning. Um, 
you know, it gives us, obviously we've established how beautiful Notre Dame is in out there because we're seeing all of the details and, you know, we're getting all these different angles as Quasimodo is climbing up the cathedral. But here we get the inside, which is equally as beautiful. And the whole song builds to her stepping into that stained glass reflection on the floor at the end, which how that does not get utilized in more of the montages and more of the, you know, like when, when you're talking about like the Disney money shots, that's up there with the chandelier in beauty and the beast. It's so gorgeous. And it's so symbolic because like she, you know, Esmeralda starts the song where it's like, she feel like she, she feels like she doesn't even have the right to pray. And by the end of it, she's brave enough to step into this light and and ask for help and like one of the most powerful parts of the song too is the lyrics is i ask for nothing i can get by but i know of others less lucky than i come on it's amazing it's a raw cry for emotion it's authentic it's heartfelt it's so genuine um yeah i agree i don't know why it isn't um because it says god probably you know well that's uh, Okay, you just came out and said it. Um, I I wasn't going to say it quite that way. The way that I was going to say it is that um, I think that we live in a world now where you... And again, I'm not debating one way or the other, so I don't want to get any hateful emails. Chill out and put your keyboard away. We live in a time where people are sensitive. Very sensitive. Where I can't go into a store and, and have somebody wish me a Merry Christmas. Everything's Happy Holidays. Which is fine, because you have Hanukkah, Kwanzaa, Christmas. You want to c- put everything in a box, and it's just Happy Holidays. That's fine. It's I'm not offended by that. But what I will say is, I think that because they're trying to make everything so exclusive and not so inclusive, where it's just one holiday, just one religion... Maybe that's where some of this does get swept under the rug. It's a song sung in a church. She's praying to God is basically what it is. So there, I think that there is some validity to that. You know, it's amazing, too, and I'm only realizing it now, is that we see Esmeralda's prayer in this song, but Frollo never really prays. He has the song, but it's not as much of a cry for help. It is and it isn't. Heaven's Light slash Hellfire, because it is bouncing back and forth between uh, Quasimodo and Frollo. Frollo, I love that juxtaposition, by the way. It's absolutely fantastic, but I disagree with you in that he isn't asking for help. I think that, well, it's not that he's asking for help so much as it is that he's trying to explain to God, because that is who he's talking about, or that's who he's talking to, I should say. He's talking to God and saying that I am a good man and I am a just man and, and I'm, I'm a loving man and I'm doing all the right things. And of course, I'm paraphrasing this. But then he not just falls to his knees at the end of the song, but he just completely collapses and just spreads himself out, begging for help or forgiveness or for whatever it is that because he's so unhinged at this point that it's it's almost kind of 
hard to figure out exactly what he's asking for or whether he's just full of himself at this point or full of you know what but i i would i would disagree with you and say that he's not asking for help or forgiveness i think that he realizes what sin is he realizes what his sins are and again i think this is all why it kind of gets swept under the rug and it's all forgotten about when it comes to the religious you know undertones here but i think that he is looking for a higher power to at least guide him in a right direction or even to clear his conscience which in a way is a cry for help well actually no you are making me realize something here because quasimodo is also it is it is prayer like on his end of the song because he's being thankful that he met esmeralda so you do I guess that's it. They're showing you like the three different kinds of prayer. One is begging. One's asking for help. One is being thankful. So you do get to see. And I, I, that would make sense, you know, with regards to what we're talking about is why why these films do kind of get swept under the rug is because it is so overtly religious. Um the other interesting thing about that song is the form that Esmeralda takes in the fire. And I mean, obviously it's a metaphor for all of the sinful things that he's thinking. And, you know, it's not your traditional villain song. You know, the fire's not green, but I just thought that was such an interesting choice to like really make him face his own demon. Right. And sort of like hyper stylizer mm. in that way. Uh, the next song on the soundtrack is A Guy Like You, which is, when you come out of Hellfire, is very, um, <laughs> very, very uh, drastic, and it's a big change. But I love this song. This is the song that the gargoyles sing to, you know, sort of pump up Quasimodo, and they're, they're leading him to believe that he has a shot with Esmeralda. And they're encouraging him to pursue her. And I think it's a great vehicle for Jason Alexander, who, in spite of the fact that it's Jason Alexander, and he is very funny. He can carry a tune. He, he really sung this very well. It's not like Danny DeVito as Phil. I mean, not that he's a bad singer, but he's not a great singer. This, this Jason Alexander actually carries. Yeah. Um, you know, and the timing is perfect because you need something to lighten the mood after hellfire and brimstone. Um, yeah, I mean, this is the sidekick song, but again, it, it's no friend like me. Correct. And then you get the reprise of the bells of Notre Dame at the end of the uh, film. And as I'm sitting here watching it, because you know, they always have a pop singer record one of the signature songs for the soundtrack. Oh, you mean like Peebo Bryson did for Beauty and the Beast? Or like Bette Midler did for this film. Really? She I sang a version of God Help the Outcasts. And if you really want to feel old, there is a I song don't. that I think just plays in the credits called Someday. It's performed by All Four One. Oh, my God. I swear. <laughs> oh, boy. The I swear, guys. All for one. And the movie Just Friends with Ryan Reynolds has ruined that song for me forever. <laughs> All right. Um, Final synopsis before we cast it. Yes. 
I think this movie's incredible. I think that it translates amazingly to digital. Mm -hmm. Whereas last week, I'm sitting here saying, if you're going to watch Pocahontas, find a VCR and a VHS. (laughs) Um, I think that this movie looks incredible um, on any format. I think the characters are great. I think the music is great. I'm not going to give it a perfect rating, but... You know, because I really hold only a few films in that high regard. I think Aladdin and Mary Poppins to date are the only ones we've given. And I perfect. think Lion King. I think we gave it to Lion King too. The the animation. Yes. And I I don't think I did it with Toy Story. I think it was close. Maybe I did do it with Toy Story after eighty episodes. I'm old, I don't remember. But this is close. This is very close. Um it's it's one of my favorite films. It it's funny because this was one of my favorite Disney films that I never owned on VHS tape. And I never took it out of the library and I never went to the video store, but I had the toys and I would stop and watch it every time it was on television. And I think if I dig through my parents' house into our old toy box, I bet you I still have Burger King toys from this movie. I'd almost guarantee I still have them. Was Were they the ones, I'm trying to remember, didn't the head flip? No, they were just little dolls. They were just... Um, I, I don't know. I thought I remembered having one where like the head rotated and like the mask was on, like the king of fools mask was on and then it flipped and then it was quasimodo no these were just like little figurines but they had um but they had like real cloth clothing on them oh okay they weren't just like they were plastic models but they had like actual clothing it was actually like when when burger king and mcdonald's used to make really good toys in the in the happy mm. meals and kid meals not that i know i haven't gone and bought a Happy Meal in a while, but, you know, you go through the drive-thru and you see the little plastic egg shell that has the toys in them and they all look stupid now. But um, I, I bet you I still have some. But, you know, I, I think this is a movie that I think uh, holds up incredibly well. I think that it's a damn shame that it as is as forgotten as it is. Um, and I wish that more people talked about it because I think it is one of the most forgotten classics in the history of this film, but haha, every chance I get, similar to what am I going to say? Batman Returns! A movie <laughs> that tonally was far ahead of its time because people hated Batman Returns when it came out in 1992, and they love it now yeah. for how dark it is, but at the time, too dark. I think this movie for 1996, coming off of Pocahontas, okay, that's dark, but also, Toy Story? Yeah, you know what? Put those two side by side. There's no comparison. But I think for modern cinema, this movie holds up incredibly well. Uh, I'm going to disagree with you. I am going to give this the perfect rating. Even though I had two criticisms of it, they are minutia. This was a favorite when I was a kid. It's a favorite now. It stands the test of time as far as being able to still appreciate it as an adult. Um, It also stands the test of technological advancements because, like you said, it still looks amazing. Um, And for me, more than anything else, the music is just timeless. I think that's what 
has the most staying power and what makes me still love it so much. But we want to know what you have to say. What is your opinion of The Hunchback of Notre Dame? You can let us know on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Monoreal Radio. You can also email us, monorealradio at gmail.com. Uh, let's talk about recasting here. I don't know that we're going to see a lot. We might not ever see a live-action remake of this film. Um, I mean, I think they did the right thing. It was announced, not officially by Disney, but Josh Gad did post a picture in front of the cathedral and alluded to the fact that they were going to do the live-action remake and he was Quasimodo, and he would have honestly been my first choice. Um... I think it's probably shelved indefinitely. If it even ever happens. There's still debate whether or not they can even save that cathedral. So I I don't know. I don't think you're ever going to see it. But let's live in the world. And I'd love to live in the world where that terrible fire never happened. So let's live in that world. And we live in the world where this movie is moving forward. We know we have Josh Gad. Perfect, perfect casting. I wouldn't have picked anybody else. Who you got for Esmeralda? Coming out of left field a little bit. You need somebody that can dance. You need somebody that's exotic looking. Uh, I would cast Rihanna. Very interesting. Out of left field. I like it. Um, I'm going to trade off of one of your casting choices that you had mentioned last week even though you had sort of written her off and I would go with Gal Gadot. Um, because I think she certainly has the exotic look. Can she dance? Probably. We're going to find I, out. I can't. I can't I, she, she, so far, she's done everything else you need her to do. But she's also one of those people. I mean, hell, she's so hot, I don't really care if she could dance. So she's in. Now, here's where you and I differ. I didn't have anybody for Phoebus because Phoebus could be anybody to me but i think you have somebody in mind i do and that's where it's really disappointing that you say that uh norman reedus phoebus oh. reedus it writes itself i you know here's the thing i believe that norman reedus could pull off the been to war been to hell and back lived through it smoked the cigarette bought the t-shirt burned the t-shirt, and moved on with my life. <laughs> but I... That's... A, like, I, I have no... I have no uh, competition for you in that department, so it's not like I can say, no, it should be this one. It should be Jeremy Renner. You know, like, I don't have... Oh, oh I don't God. Have, I, don't, oh God. I don't have that other person, but I'm not sure if Reedus is the right guy. Now, maybe it's because I've gotten used to seeing him in things like The Walking Dead and The Boondock Saints. So maybe I have a bit of a problem separating him from those roles. You haven't seen his full catalog of films. Um, I, I think that he'd pull off kind of the aloofness that Phoebus has in the beginning. Where you're not really sure which side he's on, if he's going to follow through listening to Frodo or not. Because, I mean, and that's where I think in Walking Dead it's the most similar because you didn't really know what he was going to do in the beginning because they didn't really. I mean, now Daryl has his heart on his sleeve, but like they didn't really show that in the beginning. You wouldn't have anybody for Frollo. Um, 
Actually, I like what you said before. Uh, Hugh Laurie. Hugh Laurie would be good, but I got one better. Because when I look at Frollo, I want to see somebody that has miles on them, similar to what you have in the actual character. Um, when I said last week, they don't always have to look like the character because I'm casting, in my mind, Christian Bale as Ratcliffe, and I'm getting rid of those stupid pigtails. Um, but in this case, I want somebody who looks like they could be a man of the cloth, somebody that does have mileage on them, somebody that has seen it all, somebody that can become unhinged, somebody that is conflicted, and somebody that looks like maybe they haven't slept in a month. I think I might know who you're going to say, but I had picked them for another casting choice. I don't think we're on the same okay. person. Jeremy Irons. I would love to see Jeremy Irons as Frollo in a live-action remake. I love it, because then we would have a live-action Scar. But you're right. He does look the part. Where I thought you were going, I thought you were going to say Willem Dafoe, who I had said for Hades in a live-action Hercules. And I can't, yeah, no, I'm not going to recycle that casting choice. I love Willem Dafoe. I love Willem Dafoe. But I don't, I don't know. No, he's not right for Frollo. That's what I'm saying. Like, I, I thought that that's where you were going. And that was maybe who I would have picked before you said Hugh Laurie. But I don't think it's right. And I'd much rather see him as Hades. Right. But we're interested in knowing what your dream cast is. You can let us know on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Monoreal Radio. Email us, monorealradio at gmail.com. News coming up in just a moment, but first, a quick break. Hey guys, my name is Mike. I listen to Jackie and Sean's podcast every week on my commute into work. So I reached out to Jackie, and she helped me put together the perfect getaway. I did a four-night Disney cruise ship, and she was able to answer every question that I threw at her. She put together the perfect dates and an insurance plan that made the whole experience stress-free. She was able to help me with little tips and tricks, like you can get a Mickey Mouse bar delivered to you any time of the day. And I think that was a mistake, because now I put about 10, 15 pounds on. I'll definitely be using Jackie again in the future. Thanks for everything. So if you want to book your vacation with me, you can reach out on any of our social media platforms at Monoreal Radio on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or you can shoot me an email at j.zolezzi, that's Z-O-L-E-Z-Z-I, at MagicalVacationPlanner.com. News this week, we talked about Josh Gad just a few minutes ago and the shelved project that was the live-action remake of The Hunchback of Notre Dame. However, we did see him in the live-action remake of Beauty and the Beast, and it seems as if he's going to be reprising the character of LeFou again. This time going to Disney+. Plus. It seems like, my understanding is that Gaston and LeFou are getting a prequel series? Yes, it is a Beauty and the Beast prequel, and they announced that it was starring Josh Gad and um, the actor who played Gaston, whose name <laughs> always escapes. It's, it's What is it? Kellen... You're asking something the wrong or other. Uh, I, I don't remember. I, I don't. And there's probably like a million 13 year old girls screaming at me right now. But I just we've seen the movie, we've seen the live action remake once. Once was almost too many times. But we're going to have to talk about it again eventually. And we're going to have to do it eventually. Uh, but yeah, I mean, Disney loves them. Some Josh Gad. I but mean, who does it? Of course. Of course. I mean, I loved him as Olaf. 
Um, I did as much as I didn't like Beauty and the Beast. I did like him as LeFou. That was one of the highlights of the movie for me. Um, but then they were going to put him in Hunchback. And uh, now it's Honey, I Shrunk the Kids and uh, Artemis Fowl coming out. They're going to sign him to that Elvis Presley contract where it's like you work for us until you die. Honestly, yeah. Or uh, for the uh, for the people that are like Hollywood killed Judy Garland, but honestly, I think with the way that the industry is going now, you're starting to see more and more that production companies are getting signed with these streaming services for first look deals. Yeah, meaning that you'll pitch your project to the network or the streaming service. They will look it over. If they don't like it, they can pass it on to something else, but they have to have the first look. Um, and, you know, I follow the trades. You're seeing that more and more now. But I think, and I, I've said it before, may or may not have been on this podcast, but I think we're going to start to see that trend with actors again because there is such heavy competition already with the streaming services. I think that they are going to sign actors to studio contracts the way that they used to right well i mean adam sandler just wrapped something he was he had a netflix contract i mean it was a very short contract it was only for a few movies but yeah i mean you are going to start seeing that especially with the advent of the streaming services one of those people that seemed like they were signed to one was hillary duff um but now it it seems like um the lizzie mcguire reboot which was one of the high-profile titles for Disney Plus that people were so looking forward to. Right now, that's kind of on hold. It looks like they're showrunners off the pro- project. and um, Yeah, the showrunner left in January, and the reason being was because they were alluding to... I think I don't know if it was Lizzie McGuire cheating or that she was cheated on or th- there was something about infidelity in the plot that they were going for. And um, because of the creative differences, the showrunner left. And I kind of see where there is a conflict, because if you are doing this as a Disney Plus series, you want to keep it wholesome. You want to keep it f- family oriented. But, you know, Hillary Duff actually spoke out, spoke out and she she said that it's going to be a disservice to the fans that have grown up with her. That this is what, you know, if you're setting her as a 30-year-old in New York City, that this is what's going on. Nobody wants to see a 30-year-old Lizzie McGuire acting like she's 14 years old. Right. You want that? Go watch Jennifer Garner in 13 going on 30. Nobody (laughs) wants to see that. I'm all for, like, the cartoon inner voice. I hope that they keep that for, like, comic relief. But the audience that has grown with her wants to relate to her now. Not what they loved about her when she was 13. Yeah, because that audience is no longer 13. Exactly. 13-year-old kids now are watching zombies. They're watching Descendants. They don't know what Lizzie McGuire is. It, it's like, God willing, if NSYNC ever gets back together and all the other boy bands have, NSYNC fans, we're just sitting here waiting. I don't want to hear them sing about, I want that girl or... Yeah, but you that's know, exactly what they're going I, to do. I mean, they're going to sing the hits, but like, I I want to see the maturity that Justin Timberlake has developed in his music as a solo artist. Yeah, I I I, I think 
it's uh, it's kind of different with music because most music right now is crap anyway, yeah. and crap sells, and crap sells really well. So I can see them, you know, sort of trying to cater to their original audience, but they're also going to cater to thirteen-year-olds who have never heard in sync before. It's a little different when it's when it's a character because the music is timeless. There's no. You know, I mean, Hanson is still singing Umbop and Where's the Love, right? So, like, music has no age. It's different when you're seeing a character on screen, though. Like, I get what you're saying, but I feel like they're still going to do what they do. The, yes, they will play the hits, but crap sells, and that's what the music industry is by and large now. It's all crap anyway. Well... To get back on topic. Take it from somebody that worked in top 40 music and didn't want to work in top 40 music, but I did it to get a radio gig. The music sucks. It's not rock. To me, the only thing right now that actually has heart or meaning is country music. And even some of that has started to become very poppy. Look, I mean, they ruined Taylor Swift. The music industry has ruined her. Yeah. So... It's just, it's the trend. It is what it is. A lot of people aren't writing their own music, playing their own instruments outside of Gaga and Taylor Swift. But, you know, listen, it is what it is. It's what the industry is. But back to what we're talking about here. Yes, I don't think you could honestly have a show long term. Because that's the thing. They're investing tens of millions of dollars into these projects. Right, but let's call this what it is. It's a cash grab. It is a reboot series. So you cannot recreate what was. You have to cater to the people who made it what it was. And if that's what you're doing, you have to grow with them. So here's the thing. Of all of the shows that got rebooted, most of them don't work. The Odd Couple didn't really work. Hawaii Meets World didn't didn't work. work. Hawaii Five-O has worked, but it's really just... It's it's a reboot name alone. Mm. Fuller House ran for five years. Fuller House, and I've not watched a ton of it, but what I have seen, I sit there and I go, geez, you know, this is really just a rehash of the same tropes that we saw in 1990. Mm-hmm. But they are the same characters. They've grown up. The girls are dealing with their own adult issues. It's not. Co- it's coming of age, but it's coming of a different age. Yes. And they were still able to toe the line. But Full House, and by extension Fuller House, is sort of intentionally cheesy because it is very much bubblegum family programming and i understand that's what a lot of people want for disney plus Mm -hmm. but i don't think that works for lizzie mcguire it doesn't work because now it's just a 30 year old having a solo act on a disney channel show nobody wants to see it except maybe for people who are subscribing to hulu and that was hillary duff's suggestion is that she thinks if they do this storyline where there was infidelity or whatever happened that Hulu is a good place for it because you don't necessarily have to cater. You know, I mean, that's the thing. They didn't want the Simpsons on Simpsons on Disney Plus, so where's that? Hulu. You no, know? the Simpsons is on Disney Plus. 
Is it? Yeah, The Simpsons is on Disney+. Plus. However, they have removed certain episodes, and I think they've even removed certain dialogue that got dicey. The, the entire run of the series is not there. We'll see. Then that's it. To me, put it on Hulu and, and put, put out there what it always was. Not that I have any huge stake in The Simpsons. I'm not a huge fan, but it's like for the purists, you should be able to, especially when you're paying for it. Right. You should be able to go and watch the show as it aired. Correct. Now, people can sit there and say, well, Disney Plus is not really a place for PG-13 content. The Avengers movies are on there. Those are PG-13 movies. So like, it's like, oh, but that's different. No, but it's all the same thing. Don't make a blanket statement about PG-13 and say, well, if it's PG-13 or up, it has to go to Hulu. Right. I am all about Hilary Duff and, Lind- and, and Lizzie McGuire growing up in this new series. I think for the timeline to make sense and for you to make television that people want to watch, you have to do it. No, and I give Hilary Duff a lot of credit for sticking to her guns and, and having the integrity to want to grow the story. So then, now this trickles down to people wondering, and then a rumor came out to you know uh, on the day that we recorded this podcast that Bob Iger, his last responsibility because he has stepped down as CEO, and Bob Chapek has you know assumed the role, and now the rides are breaking down, and it seems like it's hellfire and brimstone for Disney and cats and dogs living together. Very good. I am so proud. <laughs> yes, dogs and cats living together. It's mass hysteria. You got your you got your Batman in here. Thank you. You barely made it out without Ghostbusters. It made me feel so good. But a lot of people are saying that now Iger's final responsibility will be overseeing and f- quote unquote fixing Disney Plus. Well, he's got like a two year exit strategy. Yeah. So I mean. This Disney Plus was his baby. So, yeah, give it three years to get it off the ground. Yeah. I really, think, well, two and a half. It right. only came out in November. So, he'll have two and a half with it. I mean, listen, Disney Plus so far, I think, has been a great success. I think that it's been, I think the programming it's put out has been spectacular. It changed the entire industry. So, I'm not going to say it's a failure. I don't need, I don't think it needs fixing. I think fixing is the bad word. I think. Tweaking, adjusting, certainly not fixing, though. Right. So I think that it's going to be interesting to see if there's smoke to that fire with uh, Bob Iger. And then this week, we got the next trailer drop for Jungle Cruise. And I think you and I are in the same boat here, pun intended. Ha, ha, ha. I mean, it is the Jungle Cruise. It still looks good. It still looks good. But I think the teaser trailer was better. Yeah. We got some plot. We know what brings Emily Blunt over to The Rock's character and why they set off on this cruise. They're looking for this tree tree. of life, elixir thing, whatever, that's supposed to heal. Um, All right. Cool. Right on. Um. The CGI didn't look that great, and I really hope that this is not like a Cats thing where they just had to put it out and it's not finished. Um, 
I think the teaser trailer was much more funny. And what I loved about it was that it looked so much more like in the vein of Pirates of the Caribbean, where there were a lot of those, you know, like moving set piece tricks. Now this looks a lot more CGI heavy. So I hope we don't just get like that one set and then we move on. So this still has that Pirates feel. But with the change they made from Barbosa to Davy Jones. Yes. Yeah, because we do kind of see who our villain is, too. Yeah. I I don't understand him. Um, I suppose we're going to learn more about him. I don't really get it, but he's got a snake coming out of of a hole in his face. I don't know why, but obviously, you know, we have a couple of more months here until we find out. But I guess the question is, are you still excited for Jungle Cruise? Oh, always. And that's my question to you, the listener. Are you still excited for Jungle Cruise? Let us know on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Monoreal Radio. Email monorealradio at gmail.com. Thank you all so much for joining us this and every week here on Monoreal Radio. Don't forget to make sure to subscribe to the podcast on your podcast platform of choice. Leave us a rating and go ahead and share the episode with your friends and family. We know, or you know that we love to hear from you. We love to interact with you. So again, you can find us on that social media. For Jackie, I'm Sean. Have a magical week, everyone. On behalf of Monoreal Radio, we'd like to thank you for joining us. We'll see you at the movies, the stuff dreams are made of.